Welcome. We're glad to see all of you, and we want to wish you um, a very Merry Christmas. Please do come tonight and spend this hour with us. It's just, it's not even an whole hour, but I certainly hope that many of you will come, bring your friends and family. It's a great time just to hear the narrative of Scripture and also to sing, uh, to sing our songs. Um, I'm going to take a minute and just ask the Lord to um, open our hearts and um, give us understanding today. This is a very uh, amazing scripture, and I want to do it justice. So, Father, we thank you for your kindness and mercy. Please help us. Open the eyes of understanding that we might understand and know our Lord Jesus, heart and mind this great eruption into the world that changed the face of humanity and indeed all creation. Help us, save us, and have mercy on us. Amen. Okay, so we're today is the final sermon in this little short series that we've done over the course of this Advent season on the servant songs of Jesus that are found in Isaiah. Isaiah is a profound uh, book in the scripture. Probably, I don't know who, maybe there are some people that would disagree. I think, personally, it is the singularly most profound book in the Old Testament. I think that in it, you see some of the, all of the redemptive themes that we enjoy as Christians blossoming out and awaiting the coming of the God-man. Every year we've reminded you that St. Anselm wrote a fantastic piece called Cur Deus Homo, Why the God-Man? And at Christmas we have got to ask ourselves that question. Seriously consider, why the God-man? And Dawson and I have have reminded you all that the whole reason the Bible was written from Genesis 3.15 forward to the very last verse is because of what happened in Genesis 3.15, or Genesis 3 in general. We wouldn't have a Bible if it weren't for that. And so these four songs of Isaiah that are in the, towards the end of the book are culminating his, um, his introduction of a servant that will come and accomplish things that no one else is going to be able to accomplish. A human servant... And so I'm going to summarize very quickly. Listen carefully. Just listen. This is from Derek Kidner's commentary. This is one of my favorite Old Testament commentators, and he's just profound. Listen to what he says. After the display of patient gentleness in the first song, this is 42 through 1 through 9, gentleness this servant that's going to come and be gentle and kind and and gather the people of God, and the acceptance of the frustrating toil of his work in the second 
song. That's 49, 4 through 7. This is where he's singing the song to God. What good is my work? What good is what? Everything I'm doing is futile. You can see the deep humanity of Jesus Christ. God, yes, but a human being also. And then here in, in the passage that Dawson did so well last week, the servant faces active spite and the fury of evil. So it's almost like a storm that is starting to form in these songs. The sovereign Lord has given me, this is 50 from last week, His words of wisdom so that I know how to comfort the weary. This is why the God-man came, to comfort the weary. He awakens me. He opens my understanding. He's talking about Himself. Jesus is saying this about Himself. The Sovereign Lord has spoken to me and I've listened. I've not rebelled or turned away. I've offered my back to those who beat me. My cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mockery and spitting. Because the Lord God helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I will set my face like a rock, like flint, determined to do His will. From here, this next section, God is speaking to His people, and then He comes to this amazing passage of Scripture. You've heard it. We've used it in our call to worship. Listen to what God is saying. Now, God is speaking, not the servant, He's calling out to you, to us, to his people, to all humanity. Awake, awake, O Zion, wake up. Clothe yourselves with strength. Put on your beautiful clothes, O holy city of Jerusalem, for unclean and godless people will not enter your gates no longer. Rise from the dust, O Jerusalem. Sit in a place of honor. Remove the chains of slavery from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For this is what the Lord says. When I sold you, listen to this, when I sold you into exile, I received no payment in money. Now, I will redeem you without any money. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, the gospel, euangelion. How beautiful are those feet that are bringing us the good news. Peace, salvation, Good news from God that the King of Israel reigns. The watchmen, these are the men on the wall looking out, waiting for news of the battle. The watchmen shout, they sing for joy, for before their very eyes they see 
the Lord returning to Jerusalem. Let the ruins of Jerusalem break into joyful singing. The Lord has comforted His people. This is a song. He has redeemed Jerusalem, demonstrated His holy power before the eyes of all the nations. All the ends of the earth will see His victory. Get out. Get out, my people. Leave your captivity where everything you touch is unclean. Get out of there and purify yourselves. You who carry home the sacred objects of the Lord, you will not leave in a hurry running for your lives. The Lord will go ahead of you. Yes, the God of Israel will protect you from behind. Here you have this vision that God is giving the people of this victorious uh, leaving from Babylon, much in the same way they left from Egypt, in a procession of glory and victory. Their, their enemies have been vanquished. They've been destroyed. There's nothing left to do but march home to the great city, to Jerusalem, to Zion, to the promised land, to the holy city, to the presence of God, to return from the wilderness to the garden and better than the garden, into the very temple of God Himself. Of course, we know that didn't happen. At least it didn't happen in full. It happened only in part. Now, hear what Derek Kidner says about our next section, the section we're going to look at this morning very quickly. From this great homecoming, we turn to the solitary figure whose agony was the price of that return. We are at the heart of the book of Isaiah, perhaps the heart of the entire Bible. The center, its whole pattern of sin and judgment, righteousness. The poem is unusually symmetrical. Listen, five paragraphs of three verses each. It begins and ends with the servant's exaltation. The first and fifth stanza. Set within this is the story of his humiliation, which we quoted both from the Westminster Shorter Catechism this morning. In sections two and four. Which in turn frame the centerpiece of verses 4 through 6 where the atoning sacrifice of the suffering servant is expounded. 
I am not overstating when I say that these verses right here, this section we're going to look at today, in my opinion, but in many, many scholars, I don't know any commentator that would not say to the Christian church and to the old Judaic people of God, this is the center of the universe for us. I feel very inadequate even talking about these verses, but I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do it quickly. We're going to stay close to the Scripture. But I want you to know that you are now, as we are here today gathered, we're talking about what the whole Scripture is about. All of it is distilled into these magnificent words of Isaiah, this final servant song, but now of a suffering servant. A man. We know he's also God, but at this point he's just a man to the readers. And he has moved through comforting his people, being gentle to his people, sharing his frustration that his work is not going to accomplish anything. And now, this beautiful song that his father sings to us to wake up, to listen. Why? Because what you're going to hear next is the center of the universe. When I was growing up, we, we grew up in a big Middle Eastern family. Uh, family came from Lebanon and Syria way back in the first of the century. And my, my mom's mother, my grandmother, we adored her. She was one of those saintly people. All of you probably had one in your family. She cooked for our family, but not just once a week. She cooked enormous amounts, obscene amounts of food for every occasion actually every week. And we were at her house, my grandfather and grandmother, they lived until my grandfather was 95. My, I was named after him. His name was Charlie. And you all can call me Charlie anytime you want. I will ignore you, but you can call me. Yeah. 95 years old, never sick a day in his life, didn't use glasses. An amazing man. She was profound on the other side. 93 years old when she died, she cooked on a Sunday, it was not unusual to have 50 or 60 people in the house. All the food made by her hound hand. We adored her. And we used to joke and say, you know, your house is the center of the universe. And so we called it the center. Let's go to the center of the universe until one day, my brother, David, corrected us and said, you know, if the house is the center of the universe, the kitchen is the center of the center of the universe. This passage is that center of the universe. And verses 4 through 6 is the center of the center of the universe. And verse 5 is the center of the center of the center. In one verse, all of creation's meaning 
are distilled into just a few words. So very quickly, here's what we're going to do. It's different than I've done in the past. I've rearranged the chiastic structure. If you look at your bulletin, and I think, uh, did you prepare? Oh, yeah, Joanna did a great job. She prepared. This is the entire suffering servant song. This is the way it's laid out in Hebrew. You can see the first stanza, the second stanza, the centerpiece. It's a chiasm, what they call chiasm. The fourth and then the the fifth, his exaltation. The two outer sections are his exaltation with the foreboding of humiliation. Then you go to the next two sections which frame that or are the next layer and that is his humiliation or rejection. And then you hit the center, the centerpiece. So I've rearranged them and I've put them all together. We're going to talk about his exaltation, his humiliation, and finally the centerpiece, his atoning death. I don't want you to read it. It's in your bulletin, but I really would ask you not to, not to read along. Listen. Up until just the past century or so, people had to listen. They didn't know how to read. So let's pretend we're, we're old people, ancient people not old. Um, that would include me. Um, let's pretend we're ancient people and just listen to the exaltation of the suffering servant, a, a taste of the contrast of glory and humiliation. Listen. First stanza, fifth stanza, put together in my own words, his exaltation. My servant is wise. He is high and lifted up, exalted. But humanity is astonished and amazed, repulsed, revulsion. Why? Because his appearance was so marred more than anybody Before him, he was disfigured beyond recognition. Hardly human. From his appearance, you would scarcely know that he was a man. But this is the very thing that displays his victorious strength and his infinite love so he shall sprinkle or startle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths, stand speechless in his presence. We see what they had not been told. We understand what they had not heard. But it was the Lord's will It was the Lord's will to crush him, to cause him grief. And yet, when his life was made an offering for guilt and sin, nobody even thought that he would die without any descendants. 
but he will enjoy a long life. The Lord's will, his good plans will prosper in his hands. And when my servant sees all that has been accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. My righteous servant will make many to be accounted righteous, many to be counted righteous. He will bear their sins and their iniquities and therefore I will give him honors, the honors of a victorious soldier and I will divide the spoils of that victory with those who follow him. Because he poured out his soul to death and was counted among the transgressors bearing their sins, he will make intercession for all the transgressors. Here in these verses about his exaltation, you have this stunning, shocking, it's disorienting. It, it should take the reader's breath away. Arresting and jarring. Exaltation. 100%. No question. The servant is going to be high and exalted. Same language. Isaiah used of God Himself on the throne in Isaiah chapter 6. High and exalted and lifted up and glorified. In the same moment, he contrasted with this intense humiliation, dark anticipation of horror to come. Just a glimpse, a little peek behind the curtain of what is coming next as this suffering servant descends from heaven into a manger. Do you hear me? He descended into a manger. The manger, the baby, would soon be screaming. And you can't forget that at Christmas or you miss Christmas. Isaiah plunges this servant from the exaltation that is to come and one that he enjoyed before down into humiliation and rejection. It's meant to be disturbing. It's meant to cause our radar to go up and to start thinking why the God-man, why did he have to come as a human being? Why couldn't he have just sprinkled some fairy dust on all people and take them all to heaven? I mean, you know, he could do that. Why this way? Why? But Isaiah's not done. He's going to take us deeper still. His humiliation. Listen. These are the second and fourth stanzas. They're the next set that frame this inner stanza. Here, the, here it is. Who has believed our message? 
To whom is the Lord revealed His powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, a root out of dry ground. Nothing beautiful, nothing majestic, nothing attractive in His appearance. On the contrary, He was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid our faces from Him. We turned our backs. We looked the other way. We despised Him and did not care. He was oppressed and afflicted, treated harshly, yet He never said a word. He didn't open His mouth. He was like a lamb to the slaughter, like a sheep to the shearers. He was led away unjustly. He never said a word in his defense. Never opened his mouth. No one cared that he died without descendants for his life was cut short. He was struck down in the prime of life. He was stricken for the rebellion and the sin of my people, the misdeeds of my people. He had done nothing wrong, no violence, never deceived anyone. Yet he was buried like a criminal in a rich man's grave when he had to borrow. This is the perfect life of your Savior, wherein consists Christ's humiliation. Christ's humiliation consisted in His being born, and that in a low condition made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death on the cross, and being buried and being under the power of death for a time, his humiliation, his rejection. He lived a perfect life, never opened his mouth, never said a word, bore the indignity and the shame and the guilt for others. We talk a lot here at Christ the King about the sin that is underneath every sin. I don't know, probably not even a week or so that goes by that we don't mention it, right? What is the sin underneath every sin? Somebody, please. Idolatry. And what is idolatry? Martin Lloyd-Jordan said, idolatry is anything that occupies the space that God should occupy alone. It's not just having something before God. It's having anything in your life that gives your life meaning to where if that thing was taken away from you, you wouldn't be you. Well, what? you know what? Someday, you're going to be lying in a coffin or being slid into a crematorium and there's nothing left. Nothing. Who are we kidding?
Idolatry is this. Listen. Self-absorption. This is the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. It's not pride. It's this. This gave birth to pride and hate and vanity and destruction. Cain killing Abel. Lamech taking two wives and killing a guy for insulting him. And all the horror that you see from Genesis 4 on is because of self-absorption. Self-interest, self-protection, self-promotion, self-righteousness. Money, power, beauty, success, security, pride. The illusion of control. We could go on and on. And even our most unselfish acts, even when we're really being unselfish, there's some still some percentage. We don't know how much. Could be a lot. Could be a little. But there's something there, even behind our most selfless acts, that smacks of self. What credit am I going to get? What, what am I going to have if I do this one? What, if, what will people say of me if I throw my body on this grenade and I get blown to bits? Every truth. Listen, folks. We went through the book of Romans and I hope you got it last year or something. Every truth God created for His good creation, we human beings exchange for that lie. That lie of self. That's the lie we see in our culture today with the selfie. And on and on and on, identifying as a chair, identifying as a poinsettia, It's that kind of deception. Telling ourselves we're good people. Hey, I'm a good person. When God looks at me, he got, a, he got a deal. I'm the best thing that ever happened to God. He's lucky to have me. The suffering servant not only endures the shame and the guilt with silent dignity, but he destroys those lies with the power of a perfect life. 100%. Not even the slightest sin. Sinless, spotless. But you know, folks, the sad truth of Christianity and something that can get lost in the silent nights and, and the mangers and the chorus of angels, a choir, they think it's a choir. It's not a choir. It was an army of warriors that descended to guard their king and chanted a war song. Peace on earth and goodwill to all who God favors. In other words, beware and rejoice. 
a perfect life. But the truth is, folks, if you want to be redeemed, if you want to be before God in His holy presence, and you don't want anything in between you and Him, we've got to do something about that sin and that guilt that we all bear, whether it's a little or a lot. Some of you are really good people, and some of you are like me or maybe like Dawson. I don't know. Nah, he's a good kid. You know your heart. Self-absorption. When you get to this question, why the God-man? Somebody's got to pay for that guilt and shame. Yeah? If somebody comes into your house and murders your children and slaughters your wife or your husband... People around you say, oh, well, let's be sweet and let's be nice and let's forgive. Injustice was done. No matter the reason. And Genesis 3 says an injustice was done against God. Cosmic treason where man looked at the tree and said, I don't want to get rid of God, but I really want this tree in my life. I'm not satisfied with just having good. I want to know good and evil. I mean, he knows. Why can't I know? And they stepped into self-absorption. And if you don't think you're self-absorbed, you don't know yourself. How about a weak amen? All right, Presbyterians don't like to do anything other than do like that. But come on, folks. Self, what drives us? My grandmother's kitchen was the center of the center of the universe. Now, hear God's word. Surely, He has carried our grief, borne our weaknesses and our sorrows. But we thought His punishment was from God, that He was afflicted for His own sins. You remember at the cross? Come down. This is humanity mocking God. Come down. If, if you know God, come down. Save yourself. Save yourself. Show us your power. Mock. Spit. Pull the beard. Smack the face. John Gerstner, the uh, mentor of R.C. Sproul, said that the depravity of sin is such that if, if mankind could ever get their hands on God, they would choke the life out of him. How do we know? We did. And don't ever say they did. We did. 
He carried whose griefs? Our griefs. Whose weakness? Our weakness. Whose sorrows? Our sorrows. We thought the punishment was from God. If he's afflicted for his own sins. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was beaten so that we could have peace with God. Whipped so that we could be healed so that his wounds could make us whole. Jesus died a perfect death on that cross, and here is the center of the center of the universe. Every scripture in the New Testament, some overtly and some less overtly, refer back to this section of Isaiah and right to this passage. Isaiah takes us to the heart, the center of the center of the center of the universe. Pierced for our transgression, crushed, beaten, whipped, so we could be healed, so we could be once why Christmas. This is why the God-man, this is why we celebrate Christmas. This is pure, unadulterated beauty in the most hideous form you can imagine. And yet, if you will let it be what it's meant to be, it could become the most beautiful thing you ever saw in your life. We know that this song was on our Savior's lips on the cross. You know how you know? He sang these words. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I thirst. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. That's our song of Christmas, the real one. Will you trust him? I hope you will. Father, we thank you for your many kindnesses and goodness to us. There's no one like you in heaven above or on the earth beneath. There was no other way to display to our world broken and completely drowning in self-absorption and in sin. There was no way for us ever to know down at the bottom of our hearts your love and grace except for this man who was on that cross and in that manger and in that grave And we celebrate because this perfect man
by taking the sword of death into his own heart, defeated death, hell, and the grave. And Father, we pray that you will let us see the beauty of that man, our Lord Jesus, his stunning, unnerving beauty. Amen.